If you were to list the greatest sermons that you've ever heard, what would they be? Greatest preachers. I'm sure I'd be on top of the list, number one. But, but uh, you know, if you look back in history, there are, there are tremendous pastors, preachers of God's Word. Many, many who study it would say that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great pastor of England, uh, would have been the greatest order that uh, the world has ever known. Some would say that uh, the Apostle Paul, in his preaching, he would be the greatest preacher, the preach some of the great sermons that we hear in the Bible. Peter, a great one. Uh, but there, there are many others you think about. Uh, S.M. Lockridge, uh, just a tremendous pastor and, and preacher. But uh, years ago, when I was in college, my dad called me on a Monday. He said, man, you're not going to believe what happened yesterday. That, you know, Clearwater, Florida is where he pastored, and they have a lot of snowbirds, people who vacation, who winter there, and others who visit during the winter months. And he, he uh, was going to preach that morning, but he, he got up to preach and saw that R.G. Lee was in the auditorium. Now, most of you probably don't know R.G. Lee, but he was the pastor, great pastor, of Bellevue Baptist Church before Adrian Rogers ever showed up. He was there for years and years and, and built a great church. But, but many would say, from a contemporary standpoint, he was probably the greatest communicator of God's truth. Uh, he had a sermon called Payday Someday. And uh, if, you, if you're familiar with R.G. Lee, you know about that sermon. He preached it everywhere. And so when Dad stood up to preach, he looked on the crowd and saw that R.G. Lee was sitting there and he said, who am I to preach God's word when the famous R.G. Lee is here? Come on up, brother, and give us God's word. And he just stood up out of the crowd, didn't bring any notes. And Dad said he preached one of the greatest sermons he's ever heard in his life. But the greatest sermon that really has ever been preached is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount, the great Christian manifesto. It's Jesus teaching us how to be citizens in the kingdom of God of God. When you think about the greatest chapter in the Bible, we could list several great chapters in the Bible. Genesis 1 alone is one of the greatest chapters of the Bible God created. In the beginning, God created. But I think probably many would agree that Luke chapter 15 is the greatest chapter in the Bible where Jesus shares three parables. The story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or should I say lost sons. What would be the greatest verse in the Bible? Many of you have a life verse, a favorite verse that you have. I, I think many would agree that John 3.16 is the greatest verse. It really sums up the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So, the greatest verse. What about the greatest prayer in the Bible? Well, there are many great prayers in the Bible that we could read and study. Uh, but what about the Lord Jesus? What about the greatest prayer that he ever prayed? Some would say, well, it was the Lord's Prayer. Well, it's a great prayer, and many, I believe it's the greatest prayer. It's not necessarily a prayer as we've studied to be repeated often, although it's not wrong to do that. But that's not why he gave it. He gave it as a model of praying. And, of course, that's a, another study at another time. Uh, some would say the greatest prayer was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, 
If there's any other way for this cup to pass, let it be so. But not my will, your will be done. Now that's where the real victory was concerning the cross. But some would say that John chapter 17 is the greatest prayer that Jesus ever prayed. It's known as the high priestly prayer of Christ. Let me give you a little context. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's had the Lord's Supper, which we experienced a few weeks ago. And there he really is helping them understand what's about to happen. He washes the disciples' feet. There's a lot more going on in that setting than we realize that we know. And it's longer than some of the other gospel accounts. That in this setting, now Jesus is praying to the Father. And the disciples are able to, from a short distance, listen in on Jesus praying to his Father. It's the the greatest prayer, perhaps, that's ever been prayed. And you'll understand why in just a few minutes as I share it with you. There's so much in this chapter that I don't have time to share all of it, but let me give you why he says this and gives this prayer. In John 16, verse 33, there he says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now he's going to the cross and trouble is coming for them as well. And, and, and he says, I want you to have peace. Some of you need peace today. So this is for you. You need peace in your heart. I've told you these things so that in me, in Christ, you can have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Not maybe. It is going to happen. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Now he says this in John 17, 1. The hour, Father, the hour has come. Now it's interesting that he says this now because earlier in John chapter 2, verse 4, where he performs the, the first miracle, changing water into wine, and uh, he, he's very concerned about not letting the word get out about who he is. And he says to his mother Mary, the hour has not yet come. But now, he says, the hour has come. This is the great hour of life. Everything hangs on this hour. He's going to face the cross and he's going to complete the mission that God gave him. This is the great hour of your life. And what are you going to do when you face your great hour? What are you going to do? Well, some are going to talk to somebody else. They're going to read a book. They're going to try to occupy themselves with something else that will make them feel better. But what does Jesus do when his great hour is before him? He prays. That's what he did. And that's what we're going to look at, this great prayer. And there are three phases to this prayer this morning. First of all, notice that Jesus prays for himself. Let's read John 17, verse 1 through 5. He says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, 
that you may that they may know you the only true God and the one you have sent Jesus Christ I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do now father glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed here Jesus in praying for himself has two great desires number one is that he would that he would fulfill God's glory on earth verse 1 glorify your son so that the son may glorify you God would glorify Jesus and Jesus would glorify God now how would Jesus do that in three ways first of all he would do that with his power he says you gave him he's talking about himself you gave him authority now, what does that mean? Does that mean authority that is power to lord it over others? It is the power to surrender his life on the cross. It is the power to give himself up. It is the power to humble himself. That's where the great power is. It's when the pressure is on, you're able to stay in control and not overreact. And not do something that will cause more problems later. But he has the authority to give himself up, to lay himself down by serving others. How would he do it? Not only with his power, but with his gift. What is the gift? He says, so he may give eternal life. Now, what is eternal life? Well, he explains it here. First, it's knowing God. He says that they may know you, the only true God. Need, need more time for that. The only true God. So what is salvation? Why does a person come to Christ? Why, why are we so, so uh, committed to that? Well, it's here so that a person may know God, that they can experience God. The God of the universe has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate Christmas here in a few weeks. And that's what this is all about. That God wanted to make himself known to man so he could have a relationship with man. And so he provides himself an opportunity to do so through Christ. So one of the aspects, one of the reasons why we come to Christ, why we become a Christian, is so that we may know God. And then secondly, that you may know Christ. He says, and the one you have sent. Now what does that mean? That means that eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you give your heart to Christ. You're able to know God and to know Christ. But he says, that's when I give them eternal life. That's eternal life, is knowing God and knowing Christ. So there's life, spiritual life, eternal life that God wants you to know today. Not just pray a prayer, get fire insurance so you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. That's not salvation. That's not what eternal life is. It's knowing God, it's knowing Christ. It's having an intimate relationship with them. It's being committed to following what God would want in your life. So how do, did Jesus glorify God? He did it with his power, with his gift, and notice with his work. And what was that work? Well, first of all, he revealed God to us. He trained his disciples. We'll get to that in a moment. He sacrificed his life. And that is our work, is to be investing in the lives of others, sacrificing our lives for others as well. He completed his work. And we must complete our work. That's what we're called to do. That's his first desire for himself was God's glory on earth. But notice the second desire is God's glory in heaven. Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence 
with that glory I had with you before the world existed. He's saying, glorify me in your presence. I'm going to be in your presence, and therefore I want to experience your glory there as I had before I came. Before the world existed, he says, I had that glory with you. So again, he shows us, John does, in this prayer, as Jesus praying, Jesus is affirming his preexistence. That before everything ever was, he was part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All existing before the world ever was. His desire is to return to the Father with the glorified state he possessed before he came to earth. Paul says in Philippians 2, 7, that Christ emptied himself before he came. Now what does that mean? It does not mean that he emptied himself of his glory or divine attributes Therefore, making Jesus only a man on earth, which would have nullified the cross. That he had to be fully God and fully man. He had to be sent by God and to be perfect and sinless so that that would be the sacrifice for our sin, the unblemished lamb. But he also had to be fully man. So what did he give up? He only gave up his location. He was in heaven, but he came to earth fully God and fully man. John 1.14 proves that. We observed what? His glory. He didn't lose any glory. We saw all of it. The glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is he really saying here? It's, it's, it's renouncing himself. It's giving up himself so that he can come and voluntarily surrender to the Father's work. His desire was to return to glory, to be reunited with God and be in His presence. And the only way that would happen would be by the way of the cross. You really want to experience joy in your life? There's only one way that's going to happen. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Who for the joy that lay before Him endured a cross. Now, if you read Hebrews, apart from everything else, that doesn't make sense. What joy is there in the cross? Who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross? That's not what the joy is referring to. The joy is what Jesus was praying in John 17. His joy is knowing that he's going to be back with the Father in all of his glory. But it had to happen by way of the cross. There's joy that God wants you to experience. But you have to embrace the cross that you're facing. It's in this hour, as it was for Jesus, that he embraced his cross, that you must embrace your cross in order to experience the joy that is going to come to you for being faithful to the mission and to the work of God in your life. What was the path of victory for Christ? His cross God's glory, then his joy. What's the pathway of victory for us? Our cross, God's glory, and our joy. So he prayed for himself. God's glory on earth, God's glory in heaven. You see, everything that's happening in your life is for one reason. Jesus tells us it's for God's glory. Whatever is happening here on earth is about God's glory. And whatever is happening in heaven 
is about God's glory. Listen, we're never going to get away from God's glory, so we better get on it right now. It's all about Him. Yes, there are many benefits of the Christian life. There are things that we're able to experience knowing Christ. But when the hour had come and He begins to pray, it's all for His glory. So, in your hour, are you praying? Are you praying that God's glory may be magnified in your life? Notice, secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And his primary focus in this part of the prayer is for the protection of his disciples. Let me show you in verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. You see, he's being ready to leave, but they're going to remain in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by your name. Remember that. Protect them by your name so that you have, that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now what scripture is he referring to? Well, there are several, but let me just give you one. Psalm 41, verse 9. Here's what he says, the psalmist. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Obviously, the psalmist is referring to Jesus, this messianic uh, scripture that is given. So here, he's praying for protection, but that Judas was not protected in this sense, in this context, for the fulfillment of scripture but notice verse 15 I'm not praying that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one when the pressure's on in your great hour and if you begin to pray what's the prayer what's the prayer what are you praying well it's probably something like this Lord I can't take it much longer Lord I, I, I just, just take me home. Lord, get, get me out of this as fast as you can. Lord, I, I don't know if I can handle this any longer. Is that the prayer? Well, look, we've all felt those emotions, and we've all, I've prayed those very prayers. But that's not what Jesus prays. He says, Lord, help them to endure through the trial they're facing. That's what he's focused on. He's not getting them out, but helping them to endure. That you protect them from the evil one. I want you to also notice that Jesus gives a model of discipleship for this prayer. What's the model? Three aspects to it. First, he has saved men. Verse 6, he says, I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. So he's saying that the first step is He's taking people out of the world spiritually, that we're being saved. So the first step of discipleship is leading others to Christ, is people coming to know him. But notice the second step is that he has discipled men. He said, I've taken them out of the world. They're they're in a relationship with me now. Now he says in verse 8, the words that you gave me, I have given them. So Jesus for three years invested in these 12 men giving them the words the Father had given Jesus. 
Now that's what we're to do. We're to be investing in others' lives, giving them the Word of God. There's so many tools today that can be used because you may say, well, I don't know how to do that. Look, there are so many resources and we can help you do that. And the best way to learn is to let somebody disciple you. Let you they're going to use a tool to help you and that's what we, we you just call our office and say, I want to learn how, I want to get in on this. I want to learn how to do this. And then we'll match you up with somebody who can teach you so that you can teach somebody else and be investing in somebody's life. I say this humbly, but for seven years, I met with one man at seven o'clock on Monday morning, trying to help him growing in his faith. Now, was that the best time? It's a difficult time, Monday morning. I don't feel like doing a whole lot on Monday morning. But, 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 but it's investing in somebody's life, helping them understand how to live the Christian life. And notice third, he has sent men. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now that's the business that we're about. That's what Jesus was about. Saving men, discipling them, and sending them out to do the same thing. And so we need to be involved in that. You may be here today and you've not taken the first step. You don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never given your heart to him. You're not on that journey of faith with God. You don't know God. You don't know Christ. You know about them. Notice what Jesus said. That they may know about you. No. That they may know you. And so today you have the opportunity to know God. Think of it. The creator of the universe. You can know him and know Christ. Not just some historical figure that lived and died. But the spirit of Christ can live within you. That can happen today. Now, how are we able to do this? Notice verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, within Luke chapter 17, John chapter 17, this may be one of the greatest sentences right here, where Jesus affirms that God's truth is truth. God's word is truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, I sanctify myself for them, so they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, what does the word sanctify mean? It can be a religious term. Regeneration is about being born again. That's salvation. Sanctification means to be growing in your walk with the Lord, maturing. Glorification is what's going to happen after we die. We'll have a glorified body one day with God in heaven. Regeneration, sanctification, glorification. All right? Now, the word sanctify in the language of the New Testament can be translated different ways. But there's three different ways it's translated with the same root or same form. When you say sanctified, you could say they're set apart. That would be an accurate rendering. Or they are holy, that they may be holy. So every time you see the word holy in the New Testament, you could say sanctified or set apart. When you see the words or the phrase set apart, you could say, well, they're sanctified or they are holy. And here... It's been rendered sanctified because of the context. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Set them apart. They're to be different from the world. And so that's what happens to us. We're sanctified by the word of God. Romans 12. Uh, last Sunday, as you heard Ben say that uh, he was not able to be here. That's his uh, rendering of what actually happened. I called Ben and asked him to preach for me. I was going to be out of town. He said, I don't want to. Call Hayes. Uh, I just don't feel like preaching. <laughs> so that's, that's really what happened. But no, he did have the flu and uh, Hayes stepped in and Hayes preached from Romans 12. Here's what it says, if you weren't here. 
Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what? Holy, set apart, sanctified, and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is what it's all about. We're to be set apart, growing in our walk with Christ, maturing. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the word of God. Your word is Sanctify them by your what? Truth. Renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, get your minds ready for action, being self-disciplined, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you as the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who has called you is holy, sanctified, set apart, you also are to be holy, sanctified, set apart in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And then he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. It's the idea of sanctification, of being set apart, of being holy. Now the means or the tool required to be set apart is God's truth. It's God's word that protects you. What is he praying for his disciples? God, protect my disciples. How? Sanctify them by your truth. So here's a summary of what he's saying. We are given to Christ by God out of the world, verse 6. We no longer belong to the world, verse 14 and 16. Though we remain in the world, verse 11, and are not taken out of the world in verse 15. So, we're taken out of the world spiritually. We're set apart, though we live in the world. And he's not going to take us out of the world physically until he's ready for us to come home. So, this is your great hour. This is your great hour. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to pray and pray that God helps you endure to the very end. Why are you here? What is your mission? It is to make disciples. It is to help others know God, know Christ, and help them learn what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy unto the Lord. Now notice finally Jesus prays for you. He's prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. Now he prays for you. And what is his prayer for you? That you and I are one with all believers. Notice verse 21. May they all be one. Verse 22. May they be one as we are one. Verse 23. May they be completely one. Now why is that important? Back to verse 21. So the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23. So the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Why are we to be one? It's for the sake of the gospel. It's so that others 
can see the oneness that we have, the love that we have for one another, and they can experience God's love. Because the love that we have is different than what the world gives. Look, people are trying to chase the things of the world to fill the joy that they're lacking in their life, and they're never going to experience true joy until they know God and know Christ. Now, how do they see that? They see it in me and you and how we love one another, how we treat each other, how we forgive one another. There may be things about each other we don't like, but we get over that. We rise above that. We take the high road. We love. We forgive. We are one. So, why were these prayers answered of Jesus? As to himself, yes, he went to the cross and to the Father. He glorified God and God glorified him. As to his disciples, yes, except for Judas, which was a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus protected them until they completed the work he gave them to do. And, and he protected, his truth was protected after he left. Notice, as to his church, yes, the church is one through Jesus Christ. You see, our failure is to recognize that the church is one. We all have different aspects to the church. And somebody say, well, Pastor, yeah, but what about people who aren't teaching the Bible and churches that aren't on mission, you know, the gospel? You don't even hear the gospel in the church. Had a man in Mississippi come to our church. He gave his heart to Christ. He said, I was a member of a mainline church for 25 years, and not one time did anybody explain what the gospel meant. Never heard it in his church. Well, what about all that? Well, again, that's another sermon for another day. We've talked about this, why we have to stay pure to the gospel of Christ. But the point is, is that the church needs to recognize that the thread that runs through all of us is Jesus Christ. Now here are a few takeaways as we leave today I want to give you. Number one, Jesus prayed for you then. In that upper room, he's been betrayed by Judas. He's going to the cross within hours. And he had you on his mind. It's amazing. But you know the good news is that it's not just that he prayed then, he's praying now for you. He is at the right hand of the Father, but what's he doing? The Bible says he's interceding on your behalf. And when the pressure's on, and he's calling us to pray, what are you going to pray? For some of you today, all you may know to pray is Jesus. Jesus! Jesus! He hears that prayer and he knows exactly what that means and what you're going through you don't have to be eloquent in praying to the father he just wants you to say Lord I need you I love you help me and he'll be faithful secondly when you're facing your hour pray pray third you can glorify God with your power 
You see, he's given you authority and power through the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with authority, with conviction. He's given you the power to stand firm in the time of testing when it's your hour and you want to be taken out of the world, taken out of your circumstance. He will give you the power to endure as he had the gift and he gave the gift of eternal life that he's given us gifts to the body of Christ to be used for his glory as we magnify him. Also, you can glorify him with your work, with the mission of being a disciple maker. Where are you in the discipleship pipeline? Are you saved? Have you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior today? You can do that. Are you being sanctified by the word of truth? Are you growing and maturing in your walk with the Lord? Are you helping somebody else growing and maturing? Have you been sent? Are you sent a missional life? When you show up tomorrow at 8 o'clock and you punch in, what's going to happen? Man, here I'll go again. Another dreary day, another dreary week. Or maybe today, you, you go to bed asking God, God, help me see what I'm doing through your eyes. Help me to see the work that you want me to do, your work, and this work I'm in. How do you want to use me here to glorify you? What did Jesus pray on the ser- or, 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 uh, say in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't hide your light. Let them see your good works and glorify my Father in heaven. So tomorrow maybe you have a different perspective about work. Finally, are you one with others? Are you one with others? Is there conflict somewhere in your life with somebody else? I'm going to encourage you today to do everything possible to try to make that a one situation, a rec- where you could reconcile that situation. You know, some, some relationships can't be reconciled fully. But at least you may need to take the initiative and say, I'm sorry. Even if you don't bear the weight of responsibility, God can open a huge door by a very small sentence. Two words, I'm sorry. Particularly if it's in the body of Christ. Let's be one. If you're a guest today, I'm not preaching this because we have division in our church. We have a reputation for being one. We we have a very good reputation in our community of a loving church that cares about each other and about our community. So that's not why I'm saying this. But on a very personal level, there might be somebody, you you really need to do some work there. Because listen, the gospel's at stake. Others are watching how you're handling this conflict at home, at work, in the church, wherever it might be. The gospel's at stake. In Jesus' greatest hour, he prayed perhaps the greatest prayer that we've ever heard. And it was mostly centered on you and me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, it's hard for me in so many ways to imagine 
what was really on the Lord's heart in this great hour. He was getting ready to go to the cross, and yet he was thinking about me and everyone here today. Lord, thank you that he was concerned that we'd be protected from the enemy and that we have your word to help protect us, to give us the right perspective about the problems we're facing in life so that we can endure, we can get through it and experience the joy that's on the other side of our cross. Father, there might be somebody here this morning who's wanting to quit, to give it up, who's questioning whether or not you're real, that you care. But Father, help us to be encouraged today to know that you do care. That you are interceding on our behalf right now. And that you desire for us to glorify you and to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ with our lives. Thank you, Lord, for loving us in that way. Lord, there's somebody here today who needs to give their heart to Christ. I pray they'll come in just a few moments and do so. There are others who are struggling Lord, I pray that you'll help them at this point of need, that you'll give them the strength and encouragement that they need to to deal with this in a way that honors you. Give them wisdom, insight, discernment. And Lord, bring the joy. As David cried out after his great sin, restore the joy of your salvation. Lord, may that joy come to them. Father, if you're leading someone, a family, to come join our church today, I pray they'll come and be a part of the body of Christ and experience your love through this group of people who love you and love each other. Father, others may need to come and pray, need somebody to pray for them. Help these who need to make these commitments now. In Jesus' name, amen.